I am very, very excited that the first new interview of the new year is with someone who has written a very uh, intriguing biography of one of the most famous people on the face of the earth in recent years, the legendary Elizabeth Taylor. The book at hand has just been published, and it is titled Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. It is the work of Kate Anderson Brower, an author and journalist uh, with four previous books to her credit. And in this latest effort, she, with the cooperation of Elizabeth Taylor's uh, family, as well as many of her closest friends, has penned a vivid portrait of this uh, amazing, one-of-a-kind woman and her long life and long, complicated legacy. And uh, I'm very pleased to be able to uh, speak with Kate Anderson Brower for the next few minutes about her extraordinary book, which is published by HarperCollins. Kate Anderson Brower, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, as you yourself say in your book, a tremendous amount has been written about Elizabeth Taylor, who uh, at the height of her fame was among the three or four most famous women in all the world. Uh, what seems to set your book apart from many of those that have come before is the level of cooperation that you had with some of the people closest to Elizabeth Taylor. Explain that distinction and maybe a few specifics in terms of people who granted you access and were so generous with you uh, in order to paint this portrait as vividly as you were able to do. Well, it was kind of a, a set of uh, lucky circumstances that led to this book because I had done a book called Team of Five about the former presidents. Um, and I was thinking about new book ideas. It was actually my husband who suggested I think about maybe a magazine story about um, John Warner, who's a Republican senator from Virginia, uh, who has since passed away, and his um, relationship, his marriage to Elizabeth Taylor, because I'm based in Washington, D.C., and it's just a fascinating story. In the late 70s, you had this Republican senator married to, as you said, one of the most famous women in the world. And what was that like? What did she think of her time here? Um, and all of that. So I, I, at the time, got to know John Warner. I just called him up. Um, got his phone number, called him up, and he said, come on over. And I went to his house, and his wife, a uh, lovely woman, Jean Warner, um, who he had remarried after Elizabeth, uh, shared, you know, we sat there and spoke about his marriage to Elizabeth Taylor, which was from 1976 until the early 80s. And he talked about, um, you know, why they got together, how things ended up falling apart between them. And, and then he said, well, why don't I put you in touch with her family? And um, I talked to Elizabeth's son, Chris. She has four children. And Chris put me in touch with the trustees of her estate. And we had this conversation about um, a biography about her entire life and how it had been almost a decade at that point since she had passed away. She died in 2011. And uh, they were finally ready to have a journalist delve into her letters um, for the first time in her entire life, you know, her mother's memoirs that were unpublished, all sorts of things. And um, so it was a wonderful kind of confluence of circumstances that led to this book. And 
I'm grateful to them and also to the fact that they let me tell kind of an unvarnished look at her life. I mean, it's not, she was far from perfect and she wouldn't want, I don't think, a biography to make her seem that way. She was not phony in any way. So um, I wanted to do her justice too by telling her full story. I can't imagine uh, what kind of a challenge it was to make your way through the gigantic uh, sort of written legacy that she left behind her. I mean, thousands upon thousands of letters and articles and personal notes and diary entries yeah. and so on. And just to just to kind of physically make your way through that and then to somehow kind of make sense of it and 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 glean from all of that what was most significant in terms of of telling the story. Uh, can you just give us a sense of 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 the kind of the scope of that challenge and how somebody goes about confronting that challenge? Well, like you as you say, there were more than seventy three hundred letters and notes and diary entries and more than ten thousand photographs. A lot had not been published before, so. Um, it was overwhelming, and this was during the pandemic when I really started digging into the material. And so fortunately, I had gone out to Beverly Hills, and I had met with her family, with the trustees, and this was back in you know 2019. And then the pandemic starts, and it's like, well, how am I going to go back and forth and get all this material? Fortunately, they had an archivist. They actually had hired years before who had put so much online. And so he and I went back and forth in these password protected, you know, emails um, where he would, you know, send me lists of material. And it would be something like, you know, file such and such Elizabeth letter to Richard Burton. And here's the date. And of course, all of those I wanted to see. I wanted to see everything that she wrote to our husbands um, and that her husband wrote to her. And I I was interested in any correspondence she had with her children, um, any correspondence she had with people uh, like Debbie Reynolds in her life, Michael Jackson. So it was kind of looking for the things that I thought would be most interesting. And then, you know, there was a fair um, number of unpublished transcripts that I thought were really amazing, where she did these interviews with a journalist named Richard Merriman and... um, she talked openly about Marilyn Monroe and other celebrities and and what she said was never published before. So it was trying to give readers um, a view into what made her tick. You know, I mean, I don't think we often get to see uh, celebrities in this way. It's like these are not necessarily things she would have revealed while she was alive, but um, they're very telling about the woman she was and the struggles she faced. And how she ultimately survived, you know, six decades in Hollywood as a celebrity. I neglected to mention in the introduction that you and I have spoken on one previous occasion, and that was about your amazing book called Team of Five, The President's Club in the Age of Trump, in which you examined the life and legacy of the five former U.S. presidents alive uh, during the presidency of of, of Donald Trump and uh, their relationship between each other and so on. A beautifully written book, and I so enjoyed speaking with you about that. I'm just kind of curious how different this felt from that. A book about, I mean, 
comparably famous people, but of course famous for very, very different reasons than uh, all of the reasons that made Elizabeth Taylor so, so famous. Uh, did this feel like you were on a completely different planet and undertaking a completely different kind of project? Or in a sense, did you approach this very much the same way as you approached Team of Five? Um, I think that's a, a good point. I think uh, it was similar because, um, of course, the access I got to in this book was much greater. Um, but I think the fact that we tend to uh, flatten and sort of make famous, very famous people one-dimensional, whether it be presidents or uh, first ladies or actors, celebrities, and um, I, I hope that what I what I at least try to do in my work is try to show them as human beings, you know. And so it was much the same, you know. What what relationship did she value? How was she? How did she balance motherhood? I mean, she was a working mother. Um, and I wrote a book called First Women about first ladies. And to me, there's a lot of similarities there in terms of how she used her influence to. Uh, to raise more than $100 million for AIDS, for instance, at a time when very few people were talking about AIDS in the 1980s, um, or very few celebrities were willing to stand up as activists. Um, so I think she was transformational as the first influencer and the first major celebrity activist on an issue that was so radioactive at the time. And you know, we, we kind of look at celebrities now and think that they're all, of course, socially active. But at the time, there were just a handful of, you know, Sidney Poitier and uh, Jane Fonda and and Elizabeth. You know, there were not a lot of activists. And I think she she transformed what it means to be a celebrity and it make it kind of a political. She politicized celebrity in a way, which I found fascinating. Mm. One last overarching question before we delve into a, a few specifics related to her life and career. We certainly glean from the book that you came to this very much as an admirer of Elizabeth Taylor and, and for some of the reasons you, you, you just highlighted. And nevertheless, uh, you've already described the book, as have others, that this is a, a rather unvarnished look at her and at her life. I mean... Uh, successes and failures uh, both uh, are, are openly discussed in this book, and I really find that intriguing. I think a lot of times when people write books about people they deeply admire, there is a tendency to shy away from the warts, <laughs> from uh, all mm -hmm. that might detract from what makes them admirable or attractive and so on. And you clearly have managed uh, to do that. I'm curious, first of all, kind of the, the level of your admiration for Elizabeth Taylor as you undertook this project. I suspect you wouldn't have undertaken it in the first place if you weren't a deep admirer of hers. But what happened to your admiration for her through the course of this book, and in particular through the course of your exploration of her life into details, which I'm sure you didn't know about at the outset? Well, it's interesting. Just a few days ago, I had dinner with her, two of her grandsons, and I said, you know, do you think it's better that you decided to work with a writer who wasn't an expert on, you know, old Hollywood and Elizabeth Taylor? Or, you know, would it have been better to have somebody who knew so much? 
And they said, like, in a way, it's a good thing that I came to this with very little understanding of Elizabeth Taylor. I saw her, you know, as a kid in the 80s, um, you know, on tabloid covers. And, you know, she was older. She was in a wheelchair. It was a lot of controversy. And I think that um, I always knew she was a famous actress. But, you know, I had seen Virginia Woolf, and I loved Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and I thought... She's an incredible actor, but I knew very little other than that she was married a lot of times, went to rehab, Joan Rivers made fun of her weight all the time, you know, all that. And I think that in a way it was beneficial that somebody who didn't know that much about her came to it because there are people who are sworn experts on every single film she did and, you know, people who are obsessed with her. But I think that you can get a better sense from kind of a 360, kind of a big view of somebody um, and and sort of recognize what made them special if you didn't know that much about them in the first place. And I fell in love with her. I thought she was fierce and that she wasn't um, – one of her assistant, Tim Mendelson, who was very helpful on this project, said – you know, she wasn't fearless. She was courageous. And there's a difference. Like, mm. she had a lot of fear. You know, she was neurotic, and she worried a lot, but she she fought through it. So I think that's really interesting. Mm. We're speaking with Kate Anderson Brower about her latest book, which is titled Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon. This book has just been published by HarperCollins. Uh, your book is separated into six sections, and you call each of those sections an act. Act one, the most beautiful creature. Act two, passion and pain. Act three, lavish love. Act four, survivor. Act five, true grit. And finally, act six, a legacy of love. Um, In the first portion of the book where you talk about her early life uh, through the 30s, 40s, and into the early 50s, you, of course, describe someone who is coming up through a world that you didn't know a whole lot about at the outset, uh, namely the old Hollywood system, studio system, where she achieved such great fame uh, at a very young age with the film uh, National Velvet. What do you think is most significant in terms of what followed thereafter, the kind of adult uh, she grew into or be, uh, became uh, the fact that she had that life, in many ways a very insulated life, early on as a, a famous child actress. What what do you see now as kind of the lasting legacy of that being the first chapter of her life? Uh, I think that it made her empathetic towards other people who feel felt like outsiders. You know, she never went to a normal high school. She went to school at MGM. There were no kids in her grade. Um, She really, uh, Margaret O'Brien, who I interviewed, who's one of the last stars of that era, she described how Elizabeth would bring chipmunks with her to school and they would play on the lawn with all of Elizabeth's chipmunks. And, and, And just how strange it was and surreal to go to school on the lot of MGM in a small one-room schoolhouse where Elizabeth, you know, as a 16-year-old, would be seated seated next to Margaret O'Brien several years younger. And then she would go on set and have these 
passionate kissing scenes with actors much older than her and then be told to go and finish her work by the teacher. It was this strange situation that made her, I think, have a feeling of never fitting in with people her own age. And then her great beauty made her very unapproachable. She had trouble finding dates um, in high school. You know, she didn't have a romantic partner for a long time. And then she suddenly fell into this marriage with Nikki Hilton and he was abusive towards her. So I think that, I think being a child star was wounds everybody, but it was something that I think she used to help her have a develop a sense of empathy for other people in pain or other people who feel like marginalized in society. Hmm. Um, you, of course, tell us that, uh, I mean, again and again, that she she was not perfect. She made plenty of mistakes. She was very, very open about them. And, uh, and one of the mistakes she seemed to make was uh, in terms of who she chose to love and especially who she chose to trust. And, of course, you've just touched on the nightmare that was her first marriage. And uh, do you feel like... <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor was somebody who learned from her mistakes. In some ways, it seems like maybe she didn't or maybe didn't learn as much as one would hope because some of those mistakes, it seems like, were perpetuated throughout throughout her life. Uh, is that fair to say, or are we missing something there? I think that's true. I don't think she necessarily learned from her mistakes, Um you know, she she didn't believe it. So this is just a different era. She didn't, you know, therapy was not something that was common at the time. She wasn't a very introspective person. Her, she herself, you know, said, you know, you, you kind of learn through living. And she, she said, I've never done anything by half measures. You know, she led a very passionate life. And she threw herself headfirst into these disastrous relationships. And, um I think she looked for salvation in men um, through marriage and then, you know, discovered that really she could only find salvation through herself, you know. She was the most impactful when she was single, when she was in the 80s co-founding AMFAR and, like, going on Capitol Hill and testifying and visiting AIDS patients and doing these incredible things. That's when she didn't have a man in her life. So, But I, I think the studio system is just incredible to see. You know, if you were gay, you, you would be cast out. If you were – I mean, Elizabeth, before she married Nikki Hilton, actually had to have a virginity test. It's just a completely different world and time and – you know, her mom didn't protect her the way she should have because she knew Nikki Hilton. You know, her mom said in a diary, a memoir she wrote that was not published, she said, you know, a friend told her he will kill her. He will kill Elizabeth. He's totally, you know, an alcoholic, crazy. He's got all these problems. But yet, uh, you know, it was the Hilton family. And Elizabeth's mom was a social climber. And this was seen as an advantageous marriage. So in a lot of ways, Elizabeth was like fed to the wolves from such a young age. And uh, it's incredible to me that she lived to be almost 80 years old and was a survivor uh, mm. after all she had been through. Mm. 
Speaking of all that she was, what what she went through, uh, she of course suffered a a crushing, tragic blow in 1958, uh, just as she is achieving, in some respects, the height of her fame uh, as an actress, with the death of was it her second husband, Mike Todd? Her uh, third husband, her th- yes. Okay, I yeah. missed. Uh, no, no, it's hard to keep track. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and uh, he 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 was killed in a plane crash in 1958. She is only 26 years old. Uh, what would you? How would you characterize this particular relationship? And and how would you, in a sense, quantify the lasting impact of this terrible tragedy in her life? I think that Mike Todd uh, was one of the great loves of her life. He and Richard Burton are certainly tied for that uh, title. And it haunted her throughout her life. They were married for about a year. As you say, she was 26. She had three young children at that time. She was doing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. um, And she, you know, had to go back to work. Uh, He died suddenly in a plane crash. And I describe in the book the trauma of when she found out that he had died because she was sick in bed and she couldn't travel with him uh, to New York. And, and, and she had this feeling that something was wrong. And when she's told the news, she has a complete breakdown as anyone would. And just to think that at 26, she had been twice divorced, once widowed, has to pick up the pieces and um, raise her children and then continue acting. And um, I think that for her, it was incredibly challenging to go back to that set. And actually, the director um, of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof had this incredible thing where he, um, Elizabeth wasn't eating anything. And she was so depressed. She was so upset. And in one scene, the, he, he put out real food when they're having this. If you've seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, there's like a, they're outside eating um, at a picnic table. And they just kept serving real food to Elizabeth and hoping she would eat more and more because she was starving herself because she was so upset, as anyone would be, to have lost this great love. So it made her very... Um, she, from that point on, she didn't like surprises. You know, she, ne- she always wanted to, to know what to anticipate. Um, I mean, I can't imagine being told your husband died and you're, you're 26 years old in that state. It's total, you know, almost like Jackie Kennedy with John F. Kennedy. It's the kind of PTSD that you never get over. Mm. And of course, in the wake of, of the death of Mike Todd, this is when uh, Elizabeth Taylor, undertakes her affair with and ultimately marries Eddie Fisher at the time, the husband mm. of, of Debbie Reynolds, in, in uh, quite a controversial move. Um, at this point in time, you say something really intriguing in your book when you say that at this point, 1958, as she is starring in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, she was already, in your words, a secular saint. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that intriguing turn of phrase? Well, she was, you know, by the time she was in her early 30s, a a New York critic, um, New York Magazine critic said she's more like uh, the Alps or Niagara Falls. She is not just a movie (laughs) star. She's part of our culture. Um, She was somebody who was 
revered and hated and you know she went through so so much kind of the the ups and downs of her life and the triumph and tragedy when she was in her 20s is hard to imagine and then at this point where she embarks on this relationship with Eddie Fisher suddenly she's cast out um because it's seen that she is breaking up the marriage of Eddie and Debbie, which was not a good marriage in the first place. And the studio system played into it and, and had cast Elizabeth as the heartbreaker um, and in order to make more money. And Debbie Reynolds is the blue-eyed, blonde, you know, sweet, innocent, which is not the case. Um, and so I think she was, she went from being this, beloved actress to being seen as this vixen and i think she was a secular saint and then she turned into um someone who was really vilified over that relationship with eddie fisher and i think very unfairly so and she put up with a lot of sexism where she was blamed for breaking up the marriage as though eddie fisher had nothing to do with it right so looking back in the lens of today it was very much an unfair situation. Mm. It is not too long after uh, her marriage to Eddie Fisher that that uh, Elizabeth Taylor has I, I what I am assuming was her first close brush with death. That is uh, coming down with I think double pneumonia, and mm-hmm. and she really very nearly died. And uh, this is the first of quite a number of of health crises through the life of Elizabeth Taylor. And you tell us her brushes with death only added to her allure. Tell us more about this reality in Elizabeth Taylor's life. And, and, and again, I guess I'm asking uh, for your summary of, of the impact or the ultimate consequences and uh, what you see in terms of the connection between that and uh, some of what she became so renowned for? I mean, she was like a phoenix rising from the ashes again and again. We all have health struggles. And so to see this woman kind of come back uh, again and again, and then to see her, you know, she has this moment um, when she has a tracheotomy um, during that uh, double pneumonia attack. And she, she writes about how she almost died and she sees Mike Todd, you know, she sees the great white, she sees the white light that a lot of people describe in near death experiences. And she, she, um, she says she sees Mike Todd and he says, you have to go back. You have important things to do. And, and, you know, you could say that that is, first of all, she has a flair for the dramatic, right. In all of her writing and her storytelling, that's a very dramatic story, but um, I think she she later did this AIDS work and that did save so many lives. Um, so she did have important things to do, and it made her much more passionate. She wanted to just live her life, and it led to her divorce from Eddie Fisher and her love affair with Richard Burton because from that point on after that um, pneumonia battle where she almost died, she just wanted to not waste a minute. You know, she wanted to appreciate life. I think a lot of people who have near-death experiences like that have the same realization. Um, so it made her kind of dive headfirst into 
relationships even more so. And she realized that Eddie wasn't right for her. She was she married him because he was Mike Todd's best friend, and it was trying to keep Mike Todd alive. And I think it was a wake-up call to her that she had to get out of that marriage. Hmm. Yeah, you write at one point in the book, she got the message so many of us never learn, life is short and it should be lived to the fullest. And of course, uh, one of the avenues towards living a full life, as far as Elizabeth Taylor was concerned, uh, uh, was tied up in uh, the amazing actor Richard Burton, with a, to whom she, of course, was famously married twice. And uh, it is in, uh, I think your book is especially intriguing uh, when you describe some of what uh, uh, on, on, on some of what happened during the filming of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, for which, of course, Elizabeth Taylor won her second Oscar uh, as Best Actress. Um, and I, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, this was, this was a film you, you knew something about. So you came to this moment in Elizabeth Taylor's life uh, very much a fan, uh, very much an admirer of this uh, stupendous performance which she uh, and, and her co-star uh, deliver. Uh, what do you want to share with our listeners in terms of this intriguing part of your book and her story? Well, I just loved how underestimated she was. I found these letters um, actually in the Oscars. Uh, the the uh, Academy has a treasure trove of material, and I found some letters that showed that um, Ernest Lehman, a producer of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Mike Nichols had exchanged these notes, and they said things like, you know, uh, Richard is going to walk away with the film. I'm worried about Elizabeth. I'm not sure how she's doing, <laughs> Martha, you know. And the irony is, in the end, she's the one who won the Oscar, and Richard didn't. Um, and I think it says a lot about their relationship that she didn't go to the Oscars to accept it because it was such a ego blow to Richard. Um, and they were competitive professionally in that way. And she took on that role and transformed herself into a woman who was a decade older, heavy, unhappy. And this is when Elizabeth was in her early 30s and at the height of this beautiful, you know, sensual woman. And she's turning herself inside out to play a very different character. Um, and she's brilliant in it. She's just amazing. And, um, she deserved that Oscar much more than the. She she even would say the the Butterfield you know film was not her favorite. Um, so she didn't even think that first Oscar was worth it. This was when she felt that she had earned the Oscar, and she was she was proud of it. And um, I, I think my favorite part, one of my favorite parts of the book, is the letters between Elizabeth and Richard because they're so raw and emotional and passionate, and um, I loved looking through those. I can imagine. Well, ultimately, of course, your, your, your book goes on to explore some of these later chapters in Elizabeth Taylor's life after her fame specifically as, as an actress begins uh, to wane, and she becomes much more famous for, for other things like her own jewelry line, <laughs> but ultimately of far more significance is the groundbreaking work that she did uh, as an activist. We've already touched on this, but I think it bears repeating or underscoring just how 
courageous Elizabeth Taylor was at this point in time, and that the activism that she did on behalf of the issue of AIDS, and of course not just AIDS, but AIDS primarily, uh, was something nearly unprecedented in the world of, of, of Hollywood. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. She, well, I mean, I was struck by how, um, you know, like I said, in the 80s, people were uh, treating people with, with AIDS like they, you know, couldn't be touched um, in hospitals. Um, their their bedclothes often wouldn't be changed for days. They would have their, their – nobody wanted to go into their rooms. This is actually during the height of the pandemic, and I was just thinking about when I was looking into this, the, the isolation of being sick and not having anybody to talk to and to hold you. And that's what Elizabeth cared about. And I, I knew that she had done, you know, she had co-founded AMFAR. She had gotten Ronald Reagan to talk about AIDS in 1987. The first time he gave a major speech was because of Elizabeth. Um, she went to the Oval Office and... You know, she said batted her eyelashes at him and kind of flirted with them. They knew each other from Hollywood. There have been rumors that they had a fling at one point. Um, but it was that influence, and it was it was the things that she was doing behind the scenes. Like, I did not know um, that she was funneling her own money to an experimental um, uh, drug trial, uh, for a, a drug that she was hoping could save people's lives, and her assistant was um, had AIDS, and so she was trying to get him on this trial. And a, a friend of hers described going to her house and seeing piles of cash on her kitchen counter. And she said, you know, she was sending it to San Francisco because she was, and I described the, the drug that she was trying to finance. So she was doing things behind the scenes that might have even been illegal at the time because these drugs were not FDA approved. But there was such desperation because these mostly young gay men were dying with absolutely no treatment. And it was a horrific uh, way to die. And she saw her friend Rock Hudson die of AIDS and the toll that that took. Um, and so I think she just really delved into it in a way I did not realize the extent of what she was doing on a person-to-person basis, uh, paying for burials of people she had never met, uh, for instance. You know, things that were very intimate and things that were done behind the scenes that are really quite incredible, I think. Mm. What's really intriguing uh, about this uh, part of Elizabeth Taylor's story is that you say at one point she wanted to protect so many people that sometimes her own children were left feeling neglected. And, mm-hmm. and, and of course, this is not hearsay. You actually spoke with her children. They cooperated fully in the writing of this book. And I should think that was probably a difficult thing f- for them to share with you and, and probably a, a very challenging thing for you to write about. It was. I mean, they they were um, victims in some way of her fame. You know, they um, there's a lot of trauma that comes with that. They were shuffled around between friends. They were put in uh, private schools in Europe. They were, you know, in some cases didn't really know their fathers. Liza Todd, um, Mike Todd's daughter, she was a, a, a just a baby when he died. Um, 
And then Maria Burton was adopted by Elizabeth and Eddie Fisher, but she then never really knew Eddie Fisher, her adopted father. She knew Richard Burton as her father. And then when that marriage fell apart, she didn't really have a father, right? It's this sense of being um, kind of the, the constant tumult of Elizabeth's life with seven husbands, eight marriages, huge fame, traveling around the world, living on a yacht for a period of time. I mean, she was never in one place for long. And I I can only imagine, you know, they told me that there were uh, times when they really needed her, but she had an entourage of people around her who wouldn't put their calls through. You know, I mean, that's, I'm sure that's playing out now for celebrities in Hollywood as we speak. And I can't imagine how painful that is. So I was grateful to them for sharing those stories because it's just another layer of, um, I think, the price of fame. You know, there is a price to be paid, and often I think the kids do pay it. Absolutely. I do so appreciate the fact that your portrait of Elizabeth Taylor is such a vibrant one and that it shares all kinds of different facets of her, including facets that would really come as a surprise to us. For instance, in contrast to in a sense, her love of lavish uh, lifestyle, her jewelry, which of course is legendary, that collection, and uh, all of the ways in which she, you know, she lived a life in which, you know, kind of, uh, in, in which she uh, reveled in, in, in her wealth, mm-hmm. uh, although generous in many, many other ways. You tell a story in your book that's so remarkable. It's uh, shared actually by uh, one of her children, uh, Christopher, about a trip to the market, to a really simple market. I, you're laughing, so I think you remember what I'm talking about. Yes. But it gives us this insight, and, and I think it underscores what you were saying at the very outset of the interview about how important it is for us to not flatten out famous people into sort of simplistic caricatures. I wonder if you would mind sharing this little story that her son Christopher uh, shared with you. I think it's great. I love, you know, the way he told it, too. Um, You know, he just describes, I think she was in her 60s at the time, going with her to, uh, he had a a cabin in California, and she said, why don't we go there for a night? And, you know, he stops at a truck stop with her, and she's just giddy, going through the lines of the truck, you know, going through the aisles, looking at all the snacks, picking things up. She stands in line to use the restroom, and people start recognizing her, and she chats with them. And she was like a kid in a candy store, literally. It was the most exciting thing for her to just go um, be with, like, normal people. And she didn't do that very often. She didn't go to the the grocery store. And Chris kind of said tongue-in-cheek, you know, for, for you and I, this is like a mundane part of life, right? We all have to go get groceries. But for my mom, it was an event, you know, to be savored. <laughs> he, uh, you quoted him as saying, she acted as though she'd arrived at the gates of heaven. And again, this is just, you know, a truck stop convenience store, just, you know, looking at the milk duds and whatever is on the shelves. But I mean, for her, it was this new, exciting adventure. Uh, and of course, most of us would never think about a moment like that in those terms at all. It's just fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and it's. I think he he said it could sometimes be annoying too, because it's like, yeah, mom, like 
I get it. You know, you don't get to do this stuff very often. But um, because her kids were raised much more normally, like they go grocery shopping and, you know, they're normal people. But for her, she had been since she was 12 years old in National Velvet. She was a household name, could not go anywhere without being spotted. And, you know, so the kind of level of privacy she never had either. And um, I just think it's it's remarkable to think of how she was so famous for so long, for so long after she was even ever in a film. And she would joke and say, I don't know why I'm famous anymore. But um, she definitely captured something about, I, I think we were just, you know, enthralled by this woman who had lived through so much of American history, you know, from World War II through the AIDS crisis and beyond. She kind of captures a piece of American history to me. It's not just celebrity, but she, her story is the story of the latter half of the 20th century, I think. Um, she was a survivor, and she saw so much of world history. Um, and so I like the kind of, as you say, the kind of lighter stories in the book kind of bring it down to earth a bit. Absolutely. A last quick question, if I may. Repeatedly in the book, you talk about and others talk about uh, her insistence on a certain level of privacy in her life. And, uh, and it's probably one reason why, uh, in your words, she never wrote a full account of her marvelous life. And yet she was so incredibly famous, one of the most famous people in, in the whole world, and really famous for many, many, many years. It's kind of strange to think about someone being that famous and yet private. What did she keep private about her life or what was the nature of the privacy that she so craved and maybe only to an extent was able to 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 achieve or attain she kept her children private she kept that part of her life private you won't see a lot about her kids i did not know she had four kids uh she guarded them fiercely um so I think her family life, she kept as private as she could. Obviously, her marriages, she couldn't. I mean, you know, if a friend spoke to the press, they were dead to her, right? There was a, a sense of loyalty that you had to have. Um, and that's why I think it took the, the her, her children and the trustees of her estate so long to want to open up her archive because there's this feeling still of, you know, they would say something negative and then follow it up with a positive thing quickly because there's a sense that she's still kind of watching over them in a way. She's this fierce matriarch, um, and nobody wanted to cross her. Not that she was unkind, but she had grown up and seen so much in the old studio system. It was, you know, she wanted to control the narrative of her life. Um, so, you know, I think that what she did well was her children out of the spotlight you know they didn't kind of get into a lot of trouble they they are each pursuing their own careers um and so we don't know a lot about them and i think that's that's on purpose and it's a testament to her really Mm. and to her ultimate uh, love of family and close friends there's a lot of love in her life and of course at one point you say so well her lust for life has eclipsed her professional accomplishments and i think your book does such a, a good job of 
helping us take in this extraordinary woman and her extraordinary life on so many different levels. The book, again, is titled Elizabeth Taylor, The Grit and Glamour of an Icon, published by HarperCollins, and the author, Kate Anderson Brower. Kate Anderson Brower, congratulations on this fine book. It could not have been an easy project, so challenging in so many ways, but I think you succeeded admirably, and I'm so glad we got to talk about it today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much, and best wishes. Thank you for your very thoughtful questions. I appreciate it.